According to the laws of supply and demand, an equilibrium will eventually be reached where suppliers will meet the demands of consumers at a given price and quantity level. In the case of this podcast, the supply and demand for questions are met at an equilibrium point of exactly one episode per month. Stay tuned for Volume 6 of Questions and Answers on this episode of Everything Everywhere Daily. This episode is sponsored by Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond Bourbon. I recently had the chance to try Heaven Hill Bottled and Bond, and I can attest to its exceptional aromas with hints of caramel and vanilla intertwining with its oakiness, which provide a well-rounded flavor profile. Taking a sip is akin to experiencing a piece of bourbon history firsthand. Heaven Hill Distillery may be America's most quintessential bourbon distillery. Established in 1935 after the end of Prohibition, the distillery was established by the Shapira family and has remained a family-owned distillery to this day. In 1897, Congress passed the Bottled in Bond Act, which set forth strict rules for any bourbon labeled Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond bourbon goes beyond the stringent requirements of the law by aging its bourbon for seven years, not four. The end result is a gold medal-winning bourbon that truly stands out. Available nationally, look for a bottle at your local store. Heaven Hill Bottled in Bond. Heaven Hill reminds you, think wisely, drink wisely. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. It's time once again to do my monthly dive into your questions so that I may provide you with answers. If you'd like to submit a question, just join the Facebook group and leave your questions when I post the monthly Q&A thread at the beginning of every month. With that, the first question comes from Lenny Zurif. He asks, how long does it take to produce one episode to include all the research you have to do? Well, Lenny, the amount of time it takes is totally dependent on the type of episode it is. For every episode, I have a rough idea of what I'm going to say before I even start. I have a running list of episode ideas that I write down when I come across them. And when I write an idea down, I have a kernel of an idea of the story that I want to tell. The smaller the story, the easier it tends to be to write an episode. For example, if an episode is about a single person or a single event, it's much easier to write. Episodes that have a larger focus are more difficult to write because I have to condense an enormous amount of information into a small amount of time. In some episodes, I'm trying to condense a subject that could be someone's lifetime work down to about 10 minutes, and that means making decisions about what to put in the episode and what to keep out. With that being said, I'd say the average amount of time it takes to write and record an episode is four to six hours. Sometimes it takes less and sometimes it takes more. I will often select an episode based on how easy it is to write and how much time it will take. I have several episode ideas that have been staring at me for, in some cases, years. I really want to do them, but they're just daunting in how difficult it would be to write. The next question comes from Matt Bittner. He asks, on your website, there's a picture of you wearing a racing suit that says best lap F1 event. Where did this take place? Did you meet any current or former drivers? That took place during the 2011 Grand Prix of Europe, which took place in Valencia, Spain. 
I was there with a group of travel journalists who were invited to the race by the Valencia Tourism Board. As part of the event, we got to visit behind-the-scenes parts of the race, including going to the paddocks where the cars were being worked on. As part of the event surrounding the Formula One race, there was a company which set up at a local racetrack that provided a Formula One experience. They owned an actual Formula One car that had actually won a Formula One race several years earlier. The company acquired the car and put a custom body on the chassis. The new fiberglass body had seats for two passengers between the wheels. So the companies would offer passengers a ride in an actual Formula One car with a professional driver. And I believe our driver raced on the Formula Two circuit. We did three laps around the track and it was really an incredible experience. What I learned in a very visceral way is that the key to Formula One cars isn't their top speeds, but rather their acceleration. We hit about 180 miles per hour on the straightway, but it's possible to achieve that in some high-end luxury cars in places like the Autobahn. Where Formula One cars shine is their acceleration. The acceleration I experienced riding as a passenger in a Formula One car was second only to the acceleration I experienced getting launched from an aircraft carrier. That, however, is another story. The next question comes from Sharon Nelson Dubois. She asks, any updates on the travel program you talked about a year or so ago? That is a very good question, Sharon. My original idea was to lead an in-depth tour in Rome to visit all the things that most tourists never get to see. I had a lot of interest in the tour and worked behind the scenes to make it happen. That was quite a while ago. Since then, the number of people listening to the podcast has increased dramatically. The number of people interested in going on the tour now is vastly greater than the number of slots which would be available. Moreover, given that this is a daily show, taking extended time off from the podcast has consequences. I'm still interested in doing a tour with listeners. However, I now have to figure out how to accommodate a larger number of people. My current idea is to just do a river cruise that could accommodate more people. It would also solve several problems, including managing accommodations, and it would allow for lectures on board in the evening. Right now, I'm trying to find a river cruise company to work with. And when I have more information, I will provide it. The next question comes from Jeroen de Boer in the Netherlands. He asks, Hey Gary, when I talk to my friends and colleagues about your daily podcast, I always mention one or two that I find great. The Colosseum and Why the Sky is Blue. I was wondering, do you have a favorite episode that you recommend to others to get them to listen to your podcast? Greetings from the Jacuzzi and the Completionist Club. Well, Jeroen, I do not have an episode that I refer people to. When I ask listeners what their favorite episode is, the answers I get are all over the place. I don't even know if I've had two people mention the same episode as their favorite before. When I tell people about the podcast, I usually just tell them to pick any episode they think looks interesting and start from there. Either they will get it immediately, or this podcast just isn't for them. Sarah Fredman Ader asks, what's your favorite Taylor Swift song? Oh, that's easy. That would be the one about her ex-boyfriend. You know the one, the one song about her ex-boyfriend. I believe she only wrote one song about it, and so that is the song that I'm talking about. Matthew Lehman asks, You made a comment a while ago about a WrestleMania event that was so interesting you rewatch it every year. Can you explain why, as someone who has never watched wrestling before, insight as to why it is appealing or special? It would be nice. Okay, Matthew, I'm going to tell you the story of one of the most famous professional wrestling matches in history. The Undertaker vs. Mankind Hell in a Cell match at the 1998 King of the Ring show. This single match has been the subject of documentaries, has its own Wikipedia page, and 25 years later is still the number one question that these wrestlers get. 
The Undertaker, a.k.a. Mark Calloway, and Mankind, a.k.a. Mick Foley, were scheduled to have a Hell in a Cell match at the King of the Ring show. A Hell in a Cell match is just like a steel cage, except that there's a roof on top. The entire structure is made out of chain-link fencing, and this was to be the second or third Hell in a Cell match in history. In planning the event, Foley was talking with Hall of Famer Terry Funk about how they could top the previous Hell in a Cell match. Funk suggested that they fight on top of the cage, and maybe then The Undertaker could throw Foley off of the cage onto the announcer's table. This was an unprecedented suggestion. The top of the cell was 16 feet off the ground. When proposed with the idea, The Undertaker was concerned that this could literally kill Mick Foley. While professional wrestling matches are scripted and the outcomes predetermined, all of the action in the ring is real. Being thrown 16 feet off of a structure can't be faked. They lied to WWE officials about what they were going to do, and the announcers weren't aware of it. When the match started, they climbed to the top and sluggishly hit each other for a while. It turns out that chain-link fencing wasn't designed to support people walking on it, especially two guys who were both 300 pounds. In fact, they both almost fell through. They eventually got to the edge, and then they performed the spot where Undertaker threw Mankind off of the cage, and he crashed through the announcer's table. Everyone in the arena was shocked. The announcers were shocked. No one had ever seen anything like this. A stretcher was brought out, which was not an act. He was put on the stretcher to be taken out to an ambulance. Now, if that was the only thing that had happened, it would still have been one of the most memorable moments in wrestling history. However, Mick Foley then wakes up on the stretcher, gets up, and climbs back to the top of the cell. Everything at this point becomes unplanned. They keep fighting on the top of the cage, and then The Undertaker does a choke slam on Foley onto the top of the steel cage. Normally, this is a very safe move on a wrestling mat. However, as I mentioned, the top of the steel cage wasn't designed to support the weight of people walking on it, and certainly not a 300-pound man landing on it. Foley broke through the top of the cage and fell onto the ring below. And on top of the fall, a folded steel chair that they were using fell down with him and hit him in the face. Once again, staff and medical officials went into the ring. Foley refused to be sent out on a stretcher twice in one match, so he was assisted out of the ring walking. On camera, you can see something in his nose that looked kind of like a booger. It turned out it was his tooth that was sticking out of his nose. And this still wasn't the end of the match. Foley goes back in to continue fighting, and the final spot of the match was Foley spreading thumbtacks on the mat, real thumbtacks, and getting his back slammed into it once again by The Undertaker. At that point, the match ended, and everyone was in disbelief as to what they just saw. There had never been anything like it before, and there will never be anything like it again, as there is no way something so dangerous would ever be allowed. It technically wasn't a good wrestling match, but it is one of the most famous ones in history. Graham McIntosh asks, Have you ever been to Scotland? If so, where? Have you ever had haggis, iron brew, deep-fried Mars bar? Well, Graham, I have been to Scotland. I've been to Glasgow and Edinburgh, and I have visited the World Heritage Site at New Lanark. However, I've never been further north. I have had haggis, and I didn't really see what the fuss was about. Haggis and neeps really isn't that much different than shepherd's pie. I haven't had iron brew or a deep-fried Mars bar, but I also have to say that deep-fried candy bars I don't think are uniquely Scottish. I have actually seen them all over the world. I'd like to visit Scotland again and visit the Highlands and possibly the Hebrides, Shetland, and Orkney Islands as well. Jerry Gardner asks, Hey Gary, I understand through the podcast that you're a big Green Bay Packers fan. 
I live in Kansas City, and we just hosted the NFL draft here, and there was a huge Chiefs fans turnout. Through your world travels, who do you think is the most enthusiastic and passionate fan base for a local team? I'm guessing football slash soccer is the world's most popular sport. What do you think are the second and third most popular sports in the world? Enthusiastic fans can be found all over the world, and I'm not sure there's any one team or sport which has an edge over any other. In terms of the popularity of team sports, after a football slash soccer, it would probably be cricket, basketball, baseball, or rugby, depending on how you want to define popularity. The biggest sports league in the world in terms of revenue is actually the NFL, but interest in American football drops off dramatically once you get outside the United States and Canada. There has been talk of creating an NFL franchise in London. American football is about as popular in the UK as the English Premier League is in the United States. However, when taken over the entire population, the numbers might be enough to support a team. Glenn Folau from New Zealand asks, Why your disdain for the Chicago Bears? Is it because they, like the Green Bay Packers, are from the northern states and you share a regional rivalry? Or are they just, as you say, truly horrible? Cheers. Well, Glenn, the Chicago Bears and the Green Bay Packers are the two oldest NFL franchises. They have the longest rivalry in American football, and they have played the most games between each other. The Packers have the most championships in NFL history with 13, and the Bears are second with eight. Since their first meeting in 1921, the all-time series has the Packers up 105 to 95 with six ties. On top of that, there are social and geographic aspects to the rivalry. Chicago is one of the largest cities in the United States. Green Bay is the smallest city with a professional sports team. People from Illinois are always driving north into Wisconsin for vacation, and they've developed a reputation for driving extremely fast and kind of being obnoxious. Moreover, the two teams tend to be good when the other is bad. The Bears were last good in the 1980s when the Packers were horrible. However, over the last 30 years, the Packers have been pretty good, and the Bears, for the most part, have been bad. They did have one Super Bowl appearance where they lost, but that's about it. So that wraps up this Q&A episode. If I didn't get to your question, please feel free to submit it again next month. And if you would like to ask a question, just join the Facebook group, to which you can find a link in the show notes. The executive producer of Everything Everywhere Daily is Charles Daniel. The associate producers are Thor Thompson and Peter Bennett. Today's review comes from listener Saying Addict from Apple Podcasts in the Philippines. They write, Amazing. Stumbled upon this podcast around the time that the movie Everything Everywhere All at Once was the buzz. I love the movie, and while I'm willing to watch it multiple times, I'm sure that there's a limit. But with Everything Everywhere Daily, there's always something new. I enjoy listening while on my drives to and from work or during my morning walks. For me, nothing beats being able to learn while accomplishing other things too. I love the format and style, as I feel that even the most complex topics can be made clear and understandable. I'm nowhere near being a completionist, but I look forward to joining that exclusive club in time. Keep it up. Salamat, saying addict, you have officially unlocked the Philippines badge. I'm glad that some people have found this show because of the movie. I have a difficult time explaining to everyone that I was actually using this name since 2006, well before the movie came out or the British mobile phone company that launched in 2010. Remember, if you leave a review or send me a boostagram, you too can have it read on the show. And also remember, you can now leave reviews on individual episodes on Spotify.